Hi, everyone. Welcome to the MyFit Podcast, hosted by fitness coach, business owner, and CrossFit Games athlete, DJ Hillier. Physical fitness and podcasting are two of his life passions, and his goal is to train, educate, and inspire those who want to improve their general health. These podcasts are designed to help everyone, from the occasional gym member trying to improve their overall wellness, to the fitness enthusiast. The episodes capture a wide spectrum of topics, including training, coaching, nutrition, entrepreneurship, relationships, and mindset. Follow the show on Instagram at The MyFit Podcast and subscribe to his newsletter at djhillier.com. So let's get to it. Welcome back. This is DJ Hillier, and you are listening to another episode on the MyFit Podcast. I am so excited to share this week's podcast with you guys. This week on the show, I have Massimo Pigliaguchi. And Massimo uh, is a well-educated individual. He has a doctorate in genetics and a PhD in biology and philosophy. So probably the most well-educated guest that I've had on the show. And I actually stumbled upon Massimo when I saw his and watched his TED Talk on YouTube that has almost a million views talking about stoicism and how to live a stoic life. And for those of you that know me well or have listened to the show for a while, you know that I have a passion for stoicism, practicing stoicism, and basically anything that has to do with stoic reading and material, I am all about in all ears when it comes my way. And so today I wanted to bring Massimo on the show and I was so thankful that he agreed to be on. And I wanted to talk about uh, everything that had to do with stoicism and try to introduce people to the subject that maybe heard of it. And that's kind of where we started was first talking about Stoicism 101, where to begin, what is it, and how can we explain it to other people that maybe have never heard of the concept. After that, we got into talking about what is, what is the life worth living and taking a deep dive into what does that look like? Then we talked a little bit more about how to practice stoicism by using the four cardinal virtues. I think this is a really good way to implement into your daily lives, uh, and it really can help with decision-making. I think uh, somebody like me who has trouble making quick decisions, um, becoming a little bit more familiar with the four cardinal virtues can be really helpful on making decisions. After that, Massimo talked to us about the dichotomy of control and also how Stoics view death. I thought this was a really interesting part, and it's actually a really big piece of Stoicism and how they kind of work backwards and use death as a way to live your life and not to be alive, but also be dead at the same time. And you guys will understand a little bit more of that when we get deeper into the episode. After the death, we talked about how Stoics recommend viewing criticism, feedback, and conflict. And I think that everybody could use uh, this little two to three minute segment, especially with the world that we're living in right now, which has a lot of diversity and conflict and criticism back and forth. Um, Massimo gives a lot of just really good ways to view that from a stoic background. And then at the end, we close down with some resources to help you continue or even start your practice of stoicism. There's a few books, websites, and Facebook groups that Massimo gives to us. Uh, another thing we really wanted to touch on today was his, and uh, Massimo has written a dozen books, and his 13th book is called A Field Guide to a Happy Life, 53 Brief Lessons for Living. And this came out September 15th. I got it September 16th, and I read it in two days, and I was just, I couldn't put, could, I could not put the book down, and I really just loved every page of it. 
Um, and I think you guys will love it as well. So if you enjoyed listening to Massimo and you start to really get involved with the stoic mindset and the stoic way of living, I would recommend that you definitely check out his book. It's on Amazon. We'll put that in the show notes. Also, if you get through this episode and you really enjoy the stoic way of living, I would encourage you to go back to episode 65, where I talk with Michael Tremblay, who is a um, student in Queen's University in Canada studying Stoic philosophy. And we talked a little bit more in depth about Stoicism and how that can um, improve your mindset in sport and in training. So kind of a different way to go about it, but all in all, a lot of the same lessons uh, were conveyed in both episodes. So not only this one, but episode 65. If you can't tell in my voice, I'm very excited. So I'm just going to get right to it. I hope you guys really uh, get a lot out of this. And if you enjoyed it, make sure to get his book and um, see if we can be better about living a stoic life and find our happy life. All right, without further ado, let's get to the episode with Massimo. Let's go. Massimo, welcome to the MyFit Podcast. I'm so excited to have you on the show today and talk about your new book and all things stoicism. So welcome. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. Awesome. For the people that don't know who you are, let's start with a brief introduction. Tell us what about who you are, your upbringing, and how you got into stoicism. Uh, sure. Uh, my upbringing was in Italy. I grew up in, in Rome, Italy, and uh, my, I got into an academic career uh, early on uh, as a biologist. And uh, then at some point, uh, midlife crisis kind of hit, and I decided that it was time to do something different. So I went back to school and I got my PhD in philosophy because I've always had an interest in philosophy. And then I shift fields, which is fairly unusual for, a, for an academic career uh, to have that sort of shift. But the, the way I got into the stories is kind of connected to it uh, to some extent. As I said, I was going at some point through a midlife crisis, nothing particularly you know, terrible, something that happens to people. At some point, you're kind of in, your mid, in the middle of your career and you say, okay, this has been good so far, but do I really want to keep doing this for another 20 or 30 years? Uh, so that was one consideration. Also, there was a particular year in there where I got hit by a couple of major things like you know, divorce and my, my father dying. Now, none of those things in and of themselves is particularly you know, tragic or, or, or worrisome, but when they happen actually within a span of, period of time that is very limited, they, they're kind of stressful. Mm. And so that was a time where I said, okay, that's interesting. Now, it would be nice to have some kind of framework to figure out how to deal with these kinds of issues. I grew up, as I said, in Italy, so I grew up Catholic, uh, but I left the church when I was in my teenage years. And then after that, I always considered myself a, a secular humanist. And so I consider that sort of my philosophy of life, like my replacement for religion. The problem is that when, uh, when it came to the actual issue of having to, to figure out what to do next, secular humanism was pretty much useless because it is a um, sort of set of general ideas like, you know, it has to do with human rights and, you know, what, what kind of society we should have. And all. yeah, that's all great. And I agree with those ideas still, generally speaking, but, you know, I, I wasn't in, in need to change society. I was in need to figure out what to do with my life on a sort of day-to-day -day basis and over the, you know, the, the near future. So that wasn't very helpful. But I figured, okay, well, I studied philosophy. Um, surely, if an answer is coming from somewhere other than religion, that's going to be philosophy. And uh, so I tried out very, fairly systematically a number of approaches. Uh, first of all, I looked into Buddhism because a number of friends and, and colleagues said, you know, it's this, this is the kind of approach, you know, Buddhism is, has a lot to recommend. 
for itself in terms of how to deal with life, how to live your life. And so I said, okay, let's take a look. Problem is Buddhism didn't really speak to me. Uh, partly, uh, it's a cultural thing, right? As a, uh, growing up in the Western world, where I'm not really very conversant in the way in which Buddhist texts are usually written. They just, they seem too esoteric to me. They, they don't, they don't, they're now really practical in the sense that it was actually useful for me. And also, I couldn't really buy into the Buddhist metaphysics, all that stuff about karma and reincarnation, all this was like, no, I just left. I left the church early on because I don't believe in that sort of stuff, so I'm not going to go back to it. But it was interesting to learn, um, especially about, uh, about Buddhist ethics, which actually, as it turns out, maybe we're going to talk about it later, it has quite a bit to, uh, uh, of commonality with Stoicism. So I figured that, however, the, the, the general area where I was gravitating was something that philosophers call virtual ethics. Virtual ethics is an approach that started in, in ancient Greece and Rome and that shifts the focus. You know, when we talk about ethics today, we talk about or moral philosophy. We talk about things like, you know, the questions that, that you're typically trying to answer are things like, well, is this action right or wrong? Mm -hmm. so if I do this, is, is that right or wrong? Virtual ethicists take a very different approach. They don't ask themselves that kind of question. They ask themselves, what kind of person do I want to be? What, how do I work uh, to become a better person? Because then if you become a better person, presumably you're going to figure out the answers to what is the right thing to do and what, not, and, and what is not the right thing to do uh, on a day-to-day you know, -day basis. So I said, okay, that sounds like the general general ballpark. And so I studied virtual ethics for a little bit. I studied Aristotle, which is the obvious entry point in virtual ethics. Problem is Aristotle is a little bit of a aristocrat, not surprisingly. He, he grew up uh, as, uh, you know, his father was uh, the personal physician of the king of Macedon. So he was, you know, a fairly well-to-do kind of guy. So he says that what, what's important in life is a good character, what the ancient Greeks called, uh, you know, virtue. And, uh, but on top of that, you had to have a little bit of wealth and a little bit of education and a little bit of, you know, and good health and also a little bit of good looks. And I said, okay, that's, that's just, that's asking too much. <laughs> that's, that's also, of, of course, excluding a lot of people from the good life. The, the, the sorry, the Greeks had a very interesting word for uh, indicating what they were after. They call it eudaimonia. Eudaimonia, it's often translated as happiness. But it doesn't really translate very well to happiness because happiness is kind of a vague concept. You know, it, it varies. I mean, you can say I'm happy that I have gelato tonight for 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 dessert, but that's not the kind of thing we're talking about. So the typical translation of eudaimonia is that the it's flourishing. So what what allows you to flourish in life to pursue your project? But an even better translation rendition is the life worth living. So what we're after here is eudaimonia understood as the life worth living. So I figured if Aristotle is right, then a lot of people don't have a life worth living, uh, either because they lack the good looks or they, they don't have enough money or they're you know, not educated. So it's like, that's not, that's not going to do it. The next, I looked into Epicureans. Now, the Epicureans have this reputation of being the sex, drugs, and rock and roll of, of philosophy, right? So it's all about pleasure. And it's like, you know. turns out they were nothing like that. Um, actually, what Epicurus said was that the most important thing in life is to live a life without pain, mm. particularly not just physical pain, but particularly emotional pain. Well, that sounds good. Um, and, uh, and he also put a lot of emphasis on friendship. And so I said, okay, that, I can live with that, you know, friendship, no pain. But then the problem is a life without pain, Epicurus said, also means no social and political involvement. It's like, 
don't even go there because as we know, and that's as we, I think, are experiencing now daily, social and political life is in fact painful. Uh, you know, it's a, like, it's not the kind of thing you want to do if you want a serenity, you know, you know, tranquility of mind. But I couldn't imagine a meaningful life without a social or political involvement. It's that it wasn't for me. So there I was, right? So looked into three or, you know, two or three different things and nothing was quite working, but I was still convinced that that was a general ballpark. Then one day on Twitter, of all places, mm-hmm. I see um, this thing that said, uh, help us celebrate Stoic Week. I said, what the hell is Stoic Week? And why would anyone want to celebrate the Stoics? Because I thought, like most people do, that the Stoics are people who go through life with a stiff upper lip and try to suppress emotions. You know, it's kind of like Mr. Spock from Star Trek. And as much as I love the character of Spock, I don't think I want to live that kind of life. So I said, that's weird. But then I looked a little bit. First of all, I remember, I said, okay, wait a minute, hold on. Because Stoicism also is a type of virtue ethics. So it's like, hmm, and I haven't looked into it. And then I said, uh, uh, Stoicism, so wait a minute, that's Marcus Aurelius who wrote the meditations. He was the emperor, you know, uh, one of the so-called five good emperors in ancient Rome. And oh, he wrote the meditation. I did read the meditation when I, meditations when I was in college. And it was an interesting book. Um, and then I thought, oh, wait, Stoicism, that's also Seneca. Seneca was a second, you know, first century uh, Stoic philosopher and senator who was the advisor actually to the emperor Nero. And uh, I had translated Seneca from Latin when I was in high school, but I never put the two together. I never actually figured out that, you know, thought that, that Marcus Aurelius and Seneca, they're actually talking about the same stuff. So I signed up. I, I said, let me see who's, who's behind this Stoic Week stuff. Turns out to be an interesting group of which now I am actually a member. And the group is, is made up of a number of academics, initially gravitating uh, largely toward the University of London and, uh, uh, and other places in the UK. And then now it's kind of a more of a worldwide thing. So there was a lot, number of academics, no surprise there. And then there was a number of cognitive behavioral therapists. And I said, that's interesting. Why, why cognitive behavioral therapists? I mean, what the hell is the therapy in general and CBT, as it's called in particular, got to do with stoicism? Well, Little did I know that cognitive behavioral therapy, which is one of the most effective evidence-based type of psychotherapy that we have today, started out in the 60s. And the two of the people that started this thing out, Aaron Back and um, uh, Albert Ellis, were actually inspired directly by Stoicism. So they read Seneca and Marcus Aurelius, and, and they thought, hmm, there's something interesting here. So I said, okay, this is really intriguing. So I signed up for Stoic Week. And uh, I started practicing. So you, what you do is you don't, by the way, it's coming up uh, pretty soon in, in about a month uh, uh, every year uh, we do it. And uh, so I downloaded some material and there's some readings, there's some exercises some meditations and stuff like that. And the first guy that I read uh, during Stoic Week is a guy named Epictetus. And Epictetus was an early second century Stoic. He was a very interesting figure. He studied out his life in Hierapolis, which is in modern Western Turkey. And he was a slave. So talk about the lowest possible rank of society, right? Uh, he was brought to Rome. He was purchased and brought to Rome. Uh, again, also living at the court of the Emperor Nero. So he was a contemporary of Seneca, a little younger than Seneca. And uh, then he, you know, he was brilliant. He was allowed to study philosophy um, and eventually was freed. Uh, and uh, so he started doing his own, you know, making, making his own living. 
eventually he got annoying to the emperor, to the later emperor, Domitian, because the, the Stoics had this thing of, as we would say today, uh, speaking truth to power. And so it's like, ah, uh, the emperors didn't like that. Uh, most emperors didn't like that. So Domitian sent a, a bunch of these people in ex, into exile or actually killed them. Epictetus was sent into exile. He moved to northwestern uh, Greece in, uh, in Nicopolis. He reestablished this school, and that became one of the most famous schools of, the, of antiquity. So I start reading this guy, and one of the first things that I read, uh, he says, um, so we should contemplate death, but it looks like today I'm not going to die. On the other hand, I'm hungry, so let's go out for lunch. It's like, <laughs> what? Wait a second. <laughs> Who is this guy? Um, why did I never hear of this thing? Even, even though I have a PhD in philosophy and I actually took courses in ancient philosophy, I never heard of Epictetus. What the hell? Um, turns out, actually, he was very famous throughout the last 18 centuries. Um, it, it just went into a partial eclipse at the beginning of the 20th century, but we're trying to bring him back. Uh, that's what one of my books, in fact, is, is about. So I was intrigued because I, the, the, what Stoicism sounded, began, began, began to sound like was a very practical, no-nonsense, very understandable philosophy that came with exercises, with practices, with meditations, and with things like that. So I said, well, sounds like exactly what I was looking for. So I started practicing. And um, after Stoic Week, I committed to practice for a couple more months at the end of the year, and then for another full year. And then now here we are more than six years later, and we're still talking about it. Man, what so that's a cool, how I got into it. What a, what a cool story. And since then, you've written books about it. I think one of your most recent books before the one we're going to talk about is How to Be a Stoic. And, mm -hmm. now, and now you've come out with recently the A Field Guide to a Happy Life. And I've got it here. I, I pre-ordered it. I had it the first day it came out. And like we were saying off air, I'm not much of a reader, Massimo, but I read this in two days and I couldn't put it down. <laughs> Even my girlfriend was like, what are you doing over there? Because she's never really seen me read. And so this is something that I really en enjoyed getting through. It was super interesting. Um, my my journey for through Stoicism really started uh, about four years ago when I was handed the book, The Daily Stoic. And at the time, I didn't know much about it. And for those that haven't heard of that book, it's just a daily read, similar to what we have here, um, that kind of gives you a little bit of a a mindset or a mind frame to have every day. And for me, it was helpful to read it in the morning and just put my mind in one place. What I want to do before we get into the book is kind of, let's take a step back. And for the people that are still unfamiliar with what is stoicism and kind of where to start, I know there are a couple things that stoics really believe in and kind of hold true to their hearts. Can we kind of just dial it back and answer the broad question of what is stoicism? Maybe stoicism sure. 101. <laughs> sure. So Stoicism started out, as I said, in ancient Greece, in Athens, about uh, 300 BCE. And um, the major goal of Stoic, Stoicism is to allow people to become better human beings. In fact, although there is a lot of talk of virtue in Stoicism, because as I said, it's, it's, it's a type of virtue ethics, the word virtue is actually, actually comes from the Latin. Uh, the original <clears throat> was, uh, the original word in Greek was arete, and arete just means excellence. So in a, in a sense, Stoicism is trying to teach you to become an excellent human being, the best human being you can possibly be, from, particularly from an ethical perspective. Now, uh, today, ethics has a fairly narrow domain. Right? Uh, as I said before, it's, it's like you, you tend to ask questions about, you know, is this right or is this wrong? But for the ancients, ethics was literally the study of how to live your life. So when they were talking about becoming excellent in an ethical perspective, they meant 
that, that you would be able to, be, to live the best life you can possibly be. Right. Now, what does that mean in practice? So how does that, how does that work out? Well, the story started out with, with one uh, fundamental assumption. They said that we should live according to nature. Now, let me explain what that means. Before people start you know, stripping naked and, and running into the forest to hugging trees, uh, that's not what it means. Although that's fine. If you want to do that, there's no, there's no problem. Um, but that's not what it means. What the Stoics thought was like, look, if you want to figure out what a good life is for a human being, then you probably need to first ask yourself what kind of animal a human being actually is. Okay? So if by analogy, if you have a plant in your house uh, and, and you want that plant to do, do well, to have a good plant life, you have to do certain things, right? You have to water it enough, but not too much. Uh, you have to give it good soil uh, that doesn't contain you know, toxins or anything like that. You have to give it enough light, not too much, not too little, and so, so that, that it can do photosynthesis. If you have an animal in the house, you know, a dog or a cat, um, you're, you're going to have to do different kinds of things. You're not going to water your cat, obviously, but you're going give to give, give it water and you're going to give it, um, uh, you know, food and so on and so forth. So the notion being that every living organism has its own way of flourishing, its own way of living a good life. So the Stoics thought, thought all right, so then if the question is, how do we live a good life as human beings, since we're not cats, we're not dogs, we're not plants, then the question is, we have to inquire into what does it mean to be a human being? And they thought that there are two fundamental aspects to being human. We have a lot in common, of course, with other animals, right? So we have all the basic instincts of other animals. We have the fight and flight response. Uh, we, we get hungry or thirsty when we don't have food or, or, or drink. Uh, we, um, we want sex because, you know, that's, those are all things that we have in common with other, with other animals. And therefore, those are not the kinds of things that define us. They're okay. They're fine. You have to eat and drink and all that other stuff, but they're not what defines a good human life because it, we have that in common with other animals. So what does define a good human life? Well, they thought there are these two things. First of all, we're capable of reason. That doesn't mean we reason well all the time. In fact, unfortunately, a lot of the times we don't reason particularly well, but we are capable of reason to far, a far larger extent than any other living organism on earth. I mean, even the smartest animal that you can think of, you know, uh, dolphins, octopuses, and chimpanzees, they're nothing compared to human beings. It's just like, yeah, we're in a completely different category in terms of reasoning. The other thing that, uh, the second thing that, uh, that identifies, that, that sort of sets aside human beings as a species is that we're highly social. Again, there too, we're not the only social animals. Bees and ants are social animals for sure, although they're not particularly intelligent. And then the, we, we have, um, you know, social uh, primates, like a lot of, you know, chimpanzees, the, the pygmy chimpanzees, the bonobos or the gorillas and so on and so forth. But none of that, again, comes to the level of human society. Human societies are highly complicated. They're large. We have a large number of people. They're structured hierarchically so that there is division of labor. There's, it's, it's a lot of stuff going on. So the Stoics figured, okay, so that means, that implies that, a good human life is one in which you use reason to make the world a better place for yourself and for other people. And that is the goal of Stoic philosophy. You become a better person through using reason uh, with the goal of improving society at large, both for yourself and for your brothers and sisters. The Stoics were cosmopolitan, so they thought that 
we all live in the same, you know, the, on the same boat together, the entire planet. Uh, the human species is made of, you know, brother and sisters, and we should act as if everybody else, including strangers, were brothers and sisters. So that's the basic idea. Now, the question, so that's the general framework, right? And the question is, okay, but, but how do you put it into practice, mm-hmm. right? And there are a couple of ways to put it into practice. And uh, the two major ones are go through the, the four cardinal virtues and something that is referred to as the dichotomy of control. So let me walk you through that yeah, uh, so do. that your, your listeners can, can appreciate. I think really the power of Stoic philosophy, because now we're going to be, be, begin to talk about the practice stuff. So the Stoics recognize four virtues. A virtue, let me back up for a second here. When we, when we hear the word, word virtue today, because in the meantime, we have experienced almost 2,000, you know, 2000 years of Christianity, um, we tend to think about things like chastity and purity and you know, things like that. Nothing like that. The, the ancient Greeks and Romans had nothing to do with chastity and purity and that sort of stuff. What they meant by virtue is a virtue is a character trait. Right? So it's a propensity for you to behave in a certain way. Right? So if I say you're a generous guy, that means that other things being equal, you know, I often see you, you know, offering a beer to your friends or, or donating money to a certain organization or something. You are a generous guy. Right? That's a virtue. And, and that means that as a matter of behavior, regular behavior, you tend to behave in a, in a not all the time, perhaps, but, but consistently so that I can say, yeah, you know, he's a, he's a generous uh, guy. Now, there are a number of virtues that the Stoics and the ancients recognized, including, including generosity, in fact, but there were four that they called cardinal virtues because they were fundamental. And the idea is that you should use the four cardinal virtues as sort of kind of a moral compass to really organize your entire life, to, to, to um, approach anything that happens in, in life. So the four cardinal virtues are practical wisdom, courage, justice, and temperance. And I'll tell you what they are exactly, and then I'll give you an example of how to actually, you actually use them. Practical wisdom is the knowledge of what is good for you and what is not good for you. And it turns out that, that the Stoics would argue that what you might think is good for you it's not actually, is actually not good for you and, and you might not, have, not really know what is truly good for you. What is truly good for you is to refine your character, to become a better person and to refine your judgment, to arrive at better and better judgments about situations. That's really the, the major thing that is good for you. And what is bad for you, it's bad judgment. And why is that? Well, because you use everything else according to your judgment. So if you have good judgment, you can use everything else correctly. If you have bad judgment, then you're going to end up using things incorrectly. So that's practical wisdom. Courage is not just physical courage, but it's the courage to do the right thing, to act in the correct way, regardless of consequences or despite the fact that there might be negative consequences for you. Justice is essentially treating other people as human beings, as deserving of respect uh, and fairly, as you would want to be treated yourself. And then temperance is doing things in right measure, neither too much nor too little. Now, that, that's the theory. What about a practice? Well, suppose that I, I walk into my office, you know, at work, and I see my boss harassing a coworker, right? really mistreating him or her um, in a way that it's not fair. It's not just. So the question is, well, what do I do? Do I look the other way? Do I intervene? What, what do I do? So I... I I have a question, therefore, for myself. So I'm going to ask the four virtues. 
right? Practical wisdom tells me, yes, you should intervene because it's good for your character to intervene. Otherwise, you're a coward. And, and, and that's not good for your character. That undermines your character. So the first virtue says, yes, you should. Well, does it take courage? Yes, it does take courage because it's my boss. So I might face retaliation, right? I could be fired or at least reprimanded or something like that. So it does require courage. So that's the second yes. Is it just? I would say so because my coworker certainly would appreciate it. And if I were in, in her position, I would appreciate somebody coming to my aid. So yes, it is just. What about temperance? Well, temperance, remember, is doing things in the right measure. So that means that I don't want to just mumble something under my breath mm -hmm. so that my boss doesn't right. hear me. And you also don't want to blow up either. But at the same time, I don't want to go and punch him on the nose or right. something like that mm -hmm. because that's, that's – so one, one way to react would be too little, not enough. The other one would be too much. So I just consulted my four virtues, and the four virtues said, yes, you should intervene, but you should intervene, intervene in a calm and firm way in the situation, right? The idea, therefore, that the Stoics have is that you do the same process for everything you do in life. Anytime that you interact with other people, anytime you have to make a decision, you kind of mentally go through this calculation. Now, it may sound cumbersome uh, to do it, but in fact, once you start doing it mindfully, it kind of, kind of becomes second nature. It's like you, you immediately start saying, you know, after a while that you practice this stuff. Initially, it's like, um, in a sense, it's like learning to drive a car. If you remember, when you try to learn, learn to drive a car, initially you're, you're a nervous wreck because you have to pay attention to the shifting gears and to the brake and to the accelerator and to the steering wheel and the, the guy in the road and the guy that's talking to you. And it's like, whoa, the light is turning red, yellow. But then after a while you do it, it becomes second nature. You don't think about any, any of that stuff. You just, you, just, you just do it, right? So that's the same idea with stoicism. That, that's, uh, that's one way to practice stoicism, by using the four cardinal virtues as a compass, basically a framework to, um, to navigate life, no matter what you're doing. The other big way to practice stoicism, which is not mutually exclusive, they can, it can be done in concert with the, with the four virtues, is what people often refer to as the dichotomy of control. So the notion comes out of, uh, it's very well articulated by Epictetus at the beginning of a book, the, uh, one is a short book, the manual or the Enchiridion. And Epictetus says, some things are up to us and other things are not up to us. And then he lists the things that are up to us and the ones that are not up to us. And then he says, you should focus on the first and then try to just accept the last, the other ones as they come because, they, because you don't control them. So you, can, you can't do anything about them. Now, the funny thing, however, the funny bit that people tend to be, you know, so far, this is pretty straightforward. Sure. It's, it's pretty, uh, and in fact, it's a kind of um, uh, notion that is found in other cultures. Uh, something similar to the dichotomy of control, uh, you, you find it in uh, 8th century, you know, so like in medieval um, Judaism, you find it in Buddhism, actually, in 8th century Buddhism. And you find even in American Christianity, a lot of people are familiar with the serenity prayer. Uh, which is an early 20th century American uh, you know, Christian prayer. And the serenity prayer, I never remember exactly how it goes, but it says, it asks God to give you the wisdom to tell the difference between what you can do and what you cannot do, mm -hmm. the courage to do what you can, and the serenity to accept what you cannot. A lot of similarities there. It's exactly the economy yeah. of control. And it's exactly Epictetus. And not by chance, because the Enchiridion, Epictetus' manual, was actually used as a training manual for Christian monks throughout the Middle Ages. So this is, the, the connection is a direct one. It's not like, uh, it's not by chance at all. But the, 
the bit that a lot of people have a little bit of trouble um, wrapping their minds around, and that I think, however, it's crucial to understand, is the second part where Epictetus says which things are under our control and which things are not under our control. So he says, look, under your control, there are only this, these things. Your judgments, your endorsed values and opinions, and your decisions to act or not to act. That's it. You don't control anything else. Mm-hmm. Which means that not under your control are things that most people think they are under their control, such as your health, your reputation, your, war, your job, your career, your wealth, you know, all this other stuff. It's like, okay, let's stop for a second here. What, is that, what does that mean? Well, think about it in these terms. We are, as you know, in the middle of a pandemic, right? So I can apply the dichotomy of control. What is under my control and what is not under my control? You might think that my health is under my control, but it isn't really, because what I can, I can do all the right things. I can wear a mask, uh, wash my hands, wipe down my groceries, maintain social distance, all that sort of stuff, and still get the damn virus. Because it's a virus. I'm a biologist. I know how these things work. They can be anywhere, right? Can be an accident, just a fraction of a second. Somebody sneezes near you. The mask doesn't protect you 100%, and that's it. You got it, right? Through no fault of your own, but you got it. That said, the chances are that are going to be much lower than I do get the virus if I do all those things that I mentioned. But those things that I mentioned are under my control because those are the results of my judgments and my decisions to act and not to act. It is my judgment to take the virus seriously. It is my decision to wear a mask, to wash my hands, Mm -hmm. to social distance, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, right? So that's what Epictetus means. It's like you should focus not on the outcome. Here's another way to understand this. Don't focus on outcomes because outcomes are not under your control. Oh, wow. Focus on your efforts. Because the efforts and your decisions are under your control, not the outcomes, right? So we do have a tendency to focus on the outcomes. We have a tendency to want to control the outcomes. Like, for instance, mm-hmm. if I go to a, for a job interview, right? Typically, what you're, con- what you're concerned about is, well, will I get the job or will I not, right? But that, for a stoic, is the wrong way of thinking. Because getting the job is not up to you. It depends on the competition that you have. You know, there may be better people, better candidates out there. You don't know. You don't control that. Uh, it depends on who's going to de- do the interview. You don't know the guy. Uh, he may be a perfectly fine, reasonable person or not. He may have an agenda or not. Uh, he may have gotten up on the wrong side of the bed or not. He may like you personally or not. None of that is under your control. Mm-hmm. What is under your control? To put together the best resume that you can, to work hard, uh, to be actually to, to prepare that resume to, to actually develop the skills that make you uh, good for that particular job, to pick the stuff that, you know, how do you want to dress for the, for, the, for the interview, to be focused during the interview, to get a good night's sleep and not, not going out for, you know, drinks just before you go for an interview. All of that stuff is up to you. Why? Because all of that depends on your judgments and your decisions to act or not to act. So according to Epictetus, those are up to you. But the outcome isn't. So what we should do is to focus on what we, uh, where we have agency, on what the stuff that we control. The rest, we need to accept from the beginning mentally that sometimes you win and sometimes you don't. It's, it's life. Right. And we're not 
kids, we don't throw a tantrum when things don't go our way. If they don't go, if I don't get the, the, the interview, too bad. There will be other jobs. There will be other interviews. Uh, if I still get the virus, despite you know, all my precautions, well, that stuff happens. So now the next question is, what can I do to minimize the consequences of that? Right? Mm -hmm. I should call my doctor. I should check into the hospital. I should do X, Z, or Y. So you immediately refocus your efforts. Like, okay, well, I lost that one. Fine. Move on. Uh, it's useless to say, oh, my gosh, I lost it. This is a catastrophe. It isn't a catastrophe. It's stuff that happens. Mm -hmm. This is something that I, I've, I learned this idea or, or this thought about three years ago, and it's changed my life dramatically. And I mean dramatically. Right. I post about it. I, I try to exemplify it in my own life. And I think it really, uh, you know, really clicked when I was reading your book, A Field Guide to a Happy Life. And you talked about the analogy of the bow and arrow. And how you can, you, you can tell this better than I can, but you have the bow, you can prepare, you can train, you can do all these things. But once you let go, everything is out of your control. Somebody could step in, wind could happen, something could happen to the target. There's unlimited amount of things that could happen. And for me, that analogy just plays so much fruition in my life that once it's let go, once you've shot the basketball shot, once it's out of your literal, out of your control, out of your hands, out of your grasp. There's yeah. nothing you can do about it. Exactly. And people, that, by the way, that analogy of the, of the uh, arrow and the archer comes from Cicero, who was not a Stoic, but he was very sympathetic to, to, to Stoicism. And so he wrote a lot about, about Stoicism. And um, when I read that thing, uh, after a while, I actually signed up for archery classes. Oh, cool. I, I had to have the, 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 the feeling. And, and it's interesting because archery classes do teach you a lot about focus, a lot about, you know, about where exactly you can put your effort and where, where in fact you don't have any control. So it's, it's really, it is really good training, actually, so mental training uh, for, for this thing. Um, but yes, that's, that's exactly right. So um, it does change your life. Now, people do come up with, typically with the objection is like, but wait a minute, there's a lot of things that are that I can influence, but I don't, or even though I don't mm. ultimately control it. Yeah. Sure, of course. But the, the point, you think that Epictetus didn't know that? Of course, he, <laughs> he knew that. He realized that. But if you think about it, everything that you influence, it can actually in turn be broken down into these two components, the part that you control and the part that you don't control. What you call influence, it's actually the interaction between those two. Again, let's go back to the example of my job interview, right? Uh, do I influence my chances of getting the job? Of course. But what exactly does that mean? What, where does that influence come from? Well, it comes from the fact that I prepare ahead of time, that I have a good CV, that I dressed appropriately, that I'm focused, all of those things that are completely under my control, right? Where does the, 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 the fact that it's only an influence and not a decisive factor come from? From the fact that there is a bunch of stuff that I don't control, right? Mm -hmm. So every time you think, oh, I'm influencing things, I'm like, yes, but you're influencing them only through the parts that are under your control. So cool. I think there's one thing that I'm curious to get your answer on is the idea that sometimes, you know, Stoics and people that practice Stoicism are very even keeled. They don't get too excited. They don't get too down. If they control it, they can. If they can't, then they can't. And something that, I don't know if it happened in my life or I read it or something, but uh, a misconception could be that they're they're just careless. They just don't care. Right. And 
that's not, I don't know if that's true per se. Um, you know, I'm very passionate about fitness, but if something doesn't go my way on the field, on the court, then I'm going to let it go. But that doesn't mean I don't care about it. Can you right. help draw the line between people that are practicing stoicism that maybe, maybe people that don't practice look at it and they're like, dude, you are, you look like a robot or you're robotic. Right. Can you, can you help draw the connection there? Yeah, it's interesting you say that. that you're right. You're absolutely right. That is a, a normal, a typical misconception of stoicism. But it's interesting that Epictetus actually directly addresses that issue uh, in the other, in the other, another one of his books, uh, the Discourses. Now, at the time, of course, there, there was no such thing as a robot, so he wouldn't, he couldn't come up with that analogy. But he came up with the analogy of a statue, mm-hmm. and he said. No, my friend, you don't want to be as cold as a statue. You don't, you don't want to be unfeeling. That's not the point because that's not human. You're not, then, then you're not a human being. You're a statue, or as we would say today, you're a robot, right? That's problematic. Now, that's not the point. The point is different. The point is to direct your emotional energy where it's most efficient, where it's most effective, right? So um, let's say, for instance, that I see I know, an injustice being done and I get really upset and worked up and it's like I'm really angry and I'm furious about this kind of stuff, right? Either because the injustice had been done to me or to one of my friends or, or, or maybe just even somebody that I don't know, but it just feels wrong, right? Well, great. So the Stoics would say, okay, don't get mad, get even, right? Don't, get, don't let your rage, your, your anger, your resentment, turn into rage, mm. because the rage gets in the way of your clear thinking. Okay? You may, your rage may be justified, your anger may be justified by the situation, but if you act on it, the problem is you're probably not going to act reasonably. You're not going to act rationally because your, your judgment is, is clouded. Instead, rechannel those, that mental energy, that emotional energy into a real passion for doing the right thing. Right? Instead of just being angry and, and upset, develop a passion for doing the right thing. The word passion, by the way, uh, originally came from, the, from um, the Greek word pathos. And pathos is also the root for pathology. So the Greeks, not just the Stoics, the Greeks thought that passions are actually pathological. Mm. But, but what they, mean, meant, they meant by passion, it's not the same thing that we mean today. When you say, I have a passion for exercise or I have a passion for philosophy, that's not what they meant. That's fine. Having those kind of passions is okay. What they meant was a disruptive emotion, something that clouds your judgment, something that actually gets in the way of you doing things. Mm. Right? So now that said, you are, however, right that Stoics tend to be a little bit more calm than most people about things. That doesn't mean they don't care. Mm-hmm. It just means that they are mentally prepared to accept the fact that what they care about might not turn out to be the case. Mm. Right? And they, they say, you know, the thinking is, okay, if it doesn't turn out to be the case, there's no point in me getting upset. There's no point in me saying, oh, this is a catastrophe or something like that. Instead of a catastrophe, this may be actually an opportunity. Maybe there is another way of getting to the same result, or maybe there is another result that I, that I can work on. So instead of wasting time, you know, modern cognitive behavioral therapists uh, call this catastrophizing, this notion that if something bad happens to you, it's like, oh, it's a catastrophe, it's awful. It's like, well, hold on. It is something, sure, something is happening that you don't like, but is it really a catastrophe? Um, is it really something you can't do anything about? You know, like you got fired from your job. Most people would think that's a catastrophe, but 
maybe it's an opportunity. Maybe it was time for you to move on and do something else. Maybe, maybe now you're going to think a little bit better, you know, more clearly about what you want to do and what you not, don't want to do. Now, some setbacks are just, there are really setbacks. There's no way around it. You know, if, if you're in a pandemic and, and you're stuck at home, eh, well, you know, that's definitely a setback. But even there, you can say, okay, what can I do with this? This is the situation, right? This is the situation that the universe threw at me. And what can I do to make the best of whatever it is that I cannot change? I cannot make the pandemic go away magically. But what I can do is I can learn how to use Zoom and have a bunch of conversations like the one we're having now, uh, of which I've been having many more. Uh, and there are some advantages to it because it used to be that I, I, I did a lot of this in person, you know, like here in New York, we would, I would give talks about stoicism and it was fun. It was great. You know, you meet a lot of people. Sometimes you go out for dinner or for a drink. And that was pleasant. But of course, they were all from New York. And they were all, you know, they were all local and all, and all, and it's, you know, it's modest number. Now I do one of these things on Zoom and I meet people from Australia, from Switzerland, from, you know, South America. And there are hundreds of people showing up to these things. So it's like, okay, that doesn't make me feel good about the pandemic, but it does mean that I've actually found a way to use even a situation that is actually a setback. It's in, in definitely suboptimal in a way that actually moves things forward. Marcus Aurelius puts this very nicely in the meditation. And in fact, you mentioned Ryan Holiday. One of his books is, is entitled the, 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 uh, the Obstacle is the Way. And that one, that, that title is based on, a, it's a paraphrasis of Marcus Aurelius where he says, you know, sometimes you have obstacles and instead of just bumping into the obstacle and smashing your head on the, on the wall, perhaps you actually should think about what other ways you have to go around it or go under it or go above it because there may be other paths that you haven't thought about it. And he says, the obstacle becomes the way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a powerful uh, title and a great book. I want to I talk a little bit about uh, Memento Mori and death. And before people that are listening turn this off because they don't want to hear about death, stay with me because I think that the way Stoics view death is also a just kind of a good base of, to understand Stoicism because they kind of work backwards in a sense. So can you teach my listeners a little bit about Memento Mori, why death is so important to them and why they don't, they don't shy away from the word death? Yeah. Memento Mori is a Latin, Latin phrase that just means remember you, with, you are mortal, right? So you remember you should die. And it, it's an interesting story where it comes from. Uh, the successful Roman generals and emperors uh, when they, after they won big battles or you know, a military campaign, they were given uh, the highest honor that you could have in, in, in Rome, which was a triumph. A triumph uh, mean, meant that you, you get to go with your, ar- with, with your um, army and on a, on a chariot uh, b- below a gigantic arch, you know, parading all this stuff. Of course, that's a situation where things can get to your head, right? Because it's like you're, you feel very powerful. You, you, you've defeated your enemy, you're, you're, you're surrounded by this huge crowd that is cheering you. So you might think you're kind of immortal. You might think yourself as a god. So in order to avoid that, what the Romans did was to put a slave, so the lowest possible rank of society, right next to you on the chariot. And the slave constantly will repeat in your ear, memento mori, <laughs> memento mori. Wow. Remember, you're mortal. <laughs> don't, don't, get it to, don't let it get to your head. You know, one of these days you're going to be in, you know, underground. Now, why would you want to do that? For a number of reasons, I think. First of all, because 
death is a, a natural occurrence. It's inevitable. It's going to happen to everybody. And so try to run away from it or ignore it or pretend that it's not there. It's not helpful. There, you know, a lot of other societies, a lot of other cultures do take death more seriously. Americans in particular, Westerners in general, but Americans in particular are very uncomfortable with, with death. Yeah. You know, we don't want to talk about it. We don't want to see death, that, that people. We don't want to see sick people. We want to put them away as far as possible. You know, we don't want to do that. In other cultures, young children are actually brought on purpose to see people dying. Because they have, the notion is you have to grow up with the notion that this is going to happen to you and you have to be prepared. Seneca said that death is going to be, our death uh, is going to be the most important test of our character. That's what's really going to, you, you're preparing your entire life and to, to get to that point and, and be okay with it because, uh, because it's inevitable. So that's the sort of the negative side of it, right? Okay, it's inevitable, so you need to be prepared. But there's a positive side. There's a flip side of, of that, that same coin, which is once you contemplate death and once it's clear to you and you have accepted the fact you're going to die, then you're going to do, remember the, the, the quotation that I mentioned from the quote from Epictetus right at the beginning, where he said, we should think about death, but it looks like I'm not going to die today. So let's go out for lunch or so let's do something else, right? The notion is that once you accept it, you're okay with, with it. And now it's time to turn back and say, oh, but I'm alive. And what can I do now that it maximizes my enjoyment of this life, right? Um, Life is to be enjoyed. Life is to be lived at, at its fullest. And a lot of us don't. Seneca says, uh, to, he writes a, a number of, of letters uh, to his friend Lucilius that are about Stoicism. And Seneca at some point says to Lucilius, like, you know, I know a lot of people who become old and they haven't even started live. Mm-hmm. I've heard that as well. Yeah. Right. They're, they're wasting a lot of time doing all sorts of stuff that it's completely meaningless. And then they complain about the fact that they don't have time to do this or that or the other. It's like, and who's going to stop them? Why, why do they do what they're doing as opposed to what they really want to do? And it turns out that this stoic insight uh, about, you know, you need to be careful and mindful about what you want to do in life because then it's going to be gone and you're going to be regretting it. Uh, it's backed up by modern uh, psycho- uh, psychology. So there is research that psychologists have done on people on their deathbed or, you know, terminally ill patients or things like that. And the, the question that the psychologists ask is, you know, so what kind of things do you regret uh, having done or not having done? And I guarantee you, nobody regrets uh, having, not having spent enough time on Facebook. <laughs> um, nobody regrets not having us uh, participate to yet another office meeting or, or, or things like that. Nobody. It's on nobody's list. What people do regret is not having spent enough time with their friends, with their children, mm, with their loved ones. Relationships. Mm. It's all about relationships. People don't even regret not having made another million, including people who are rich. They don't regret the, you know, oh, well, I should have gotten you know, better. Or even a career. Careers are important. Uh, because they are a source of meaning, right? Depending on what you do in your life, but they are a source of meaning. But even that is secondary to relations. Uh, so, so, and that is what the Stoics were talking about. It's like, you know, you need to pay more attention to what you want to do and do it. Uh, there's a wonderful phrase that uh, Epictetus uses near the end of the Enchiridion, near the end of the, of the manual, uh, where he says, um, what are you waiting for? The Olympic Games have, have already started. You're already behind. Mm-hmm. Why are you telling yourself, oh, I'm going to be better tomorrow? Like, you know, when people do the, the New Year's resolutions, 
right? Mm-hmm. Oh, Which yeah. we all know typically fail, you know, mm-hmm. within, within a month. I mean, research is pretty clear on that, that, mm-hmm. you know, 90% of people just drop out of their New Year's resolution a bit, about a month or two into it. But one of the things that always puzzled me about the concept of New Year's resolutions, even before I embraced stoicism, is like, wait a minute. So you're telling me that you recognize, you know, you, you understand, you agree that uh, to stop smoking is good for you, that to go to the gym is good for you, that, that to eat and drink less is good for you, that to spend more time with your friends is good for you. But somehow you decided that you're going to do it next year. Not now. <laughs> Why? <laughs> what, what the hell are you waiting for? <laughs> like, that doesn't make any sense, right? Mm-hmm. And so that's why Peter says, like, don't wait because the Olympic Games has already started. You're already behind. Mm-hmm. The time to become a better individual, the, the time of, of taking charge of your life is right now. Don't wait until tomorrow. Don't wait until next year because you don't actually know how long you have. Right. right? Death, death is inevitable. So use that as, almost use that as motivation, would you say? Absolutely. Not only is inevitable, but we actually don't know when it comes, right? So that's the thing. I mean, Seneca says uh, that, uh, that he finds very puzzling when people say, oh, so-and-so died before his time. He says, there's no such thing as before his time. People die when they die. Um, you know, people die when the, the universal web of cause and effect has decided that they're going to die. <laughs> it's neither one minute too late nor one minute too, too early. And because we don't know when that is, Seneca says you should live your life as, as if every day we're, we're going to be your last one. Mm-hmm. This is actually one of the exercises, uh, one of the standard stoic exercises. You can uh, do it as a sort of meditation. You, you open up a blank page. You draw a table with two columns. And then you start putting on the left column the kinds of things that you would do if you really need, knew that today was the last day, mm. right? What kind of things would you do? Mm-hmm. And then on the right column, you're going to do things, you're going to put things that you think are important, but, but that you wouldn't necessarily do on your last day. And then you can add a third column with the kind of stuff that you wouldn't do either way, that you wouldn't care for either way. That gives you a very visual approach, you know, a, a, a summary of your own priorities. Like, ah, oh, turns out <laughs> this kind of stuff is actually not a, a priority when I think about it that way. And these are the kind of stuff actually is a priority. Mm. It's a good exercise to go to, to, to do for yourself. Absolutely. I wanted to squeeze one more in before we get to the last remarks here. Sure. And it's the idea of um, criticism and feedback. And I think the Stoics and reading Stoicism, they have some really good uh, insights and ideas about how to accept criticism, feedback, and conflict. Can you talk to us a little bit about what a Stoic uh, person would look like going through receiving feedback, criticism, or being in conflict? Yeah. So the, the Stoics were big on the notion that you should understand that uh, you cannot possibly be insulted. There is no such thing as an insult. Mm. Um, and the reason for that is because if somebody is, uh, is insulting you um, because he's saying something bad or something negative or something you know, critical or something like that, then there are only two options. There are only two possibilities. Either he's right or he's wrong. If he's right, then you should thank him. You say, oh, thank you. I didn't mm. think about that, right? Maybe, maybe he, he conveyed the message a little too harshly and he could have been a little bit more diplomatic about it. But if he's right, he's right. And, and therefore, you, the rational thing to do, the reasonable thing to do is to say, thank you. If he's wrong, then it's no skin off your nose. It's his problem. Right? He, he's saying he's uttering a, a falsity. He's, he's saying something that is not true. So why would you be upset? 
Mm. Um, it's not. It's nothing. It's nothing to you. It's got nothing to do with you. It's. Uh, it's just somebody opening his mouth and, and moving air. But the fact that it hits your ear, it doesn't doesn't matter. You are the one that lets the insult become an insult because you are the one that gets offended. And what other people say, of course, is not up to, to you. That's under their control. But how you react to other people, what other people say, that's definitely up to you. And so there is no such thing as a as an insult. There is no such thing as a uh, negative criticism. If criticism is on the mark, then the reasonable thing to do is to accept it and say, yeah, that, that's a good point. I, mm. I didn't think about it, right? And, uh, you know, we, we're not sages. We're not perfect. We're not, uh, you know, we all make mistakes. And it's really interesting uh, to see how difficult it is for so many people to just say, yeah, you're right. That, on that one, I screwed up. It's like, you know, that, that was my mistake. Sure. It's so, but, but once you get start doing it, it's so liberating. Mm-hmm. It's like, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a weight that is lifted from your shoulders. Like, oh, okay, I don't have to defend myself all the time. I can just say, sure, good idea. Now I'm going to try to do it differently. Sure, very different way and, and something that we could probably use as, as a society in today's day and age. And yeah. another, another thing you noted in your book was talking about people behind their backs. And it was interesting to me, you even noted that whether you're praising or talking negative, don't do it. Is this kind of, a, are we dovetailing in the right direction? Do these two relate? Yeah, so the, the notion um, that the Stoics have is that gossip or praise are really more about yourself than about the other person, right? Mm. So, so if, I, if I say to you, oh, well, what a great, great guy you are, it's really about me feeling good uh, about, about something. It doesn't make you any, any better of a human being. If you're a good person, you're a good person. You don't need to tell, you don't need to tell you, hey, you're good. Um, same if you're bad. <laughs> If there's something that it doesn't work out. Um, so the notion is that we should never gossip because gossiping is obviously talking about, usually not in a flattering way, about people behind their back. Now think about the, the virtue of justice. Justice for the Stoics means acting the way in which you would like other people to act. Would you like other people to gossip about you? I don't think so. Right. Would you like other people to exchange you know, negative, uh, you know, critical stuff about you? No. You wouldn't. So why the hell are you doing it then, right? Um, in Stoicism, everything begins with you. You are the starting point because it's about your growth as a human being. So before you go out there and tell other people what to do or what not to do, uh, you should put yourself in front of the mirror and say, so what am I doing here, <laughs> right? So, so if you say to somebody else, uh, you know, if, oh, that person is hypocritical, great. It may be, but that's not up to you really. What about you? Are you, have you ever been an hypocrite? Marcus Aurelius does this really interesting exercise in the meditation. Um, he says to himself, remember, he was the emperor. So if he got into a notion and if he got upset about something, people could lose their head, literally, right? So he was very careful not to lose his temper. And one of the things that he says, like, okay, sure, these people are, you know, those people are annoying that other person is, you know, uh, is trying to take advantage of it. But, have you never do, done something like that? Have you never been annoying to other people? Have you never tried to, you know, put stuff on you, on, so, so put things so that, uh, that you had your advantage? Of course you did, because you're a human being. And so you appreciate it if other people cut you some slack on that. Then do the same to other people, right? So reciprocate the favor. In other words, use the same exact standard that you use to yourself for others. 
right? Don't use double standards. Double standards is the definition of, of being hypocritical. Awesome. Very cool. I like the way that stoicism kind of can just knock you on your ass. You know, you can read it and it's just like, damn, like that just spoke to my soul. So that, that, that is one of the most fun parts about reading it. But um, as we close down, so we have the book out, uh, A Field Guide to a Happy Life. Talk, talk to listeners about what can you expect on this? Is it something that a beginner to stoicism can read? And maybe what was your motivation to writing this book? Yes. So the answer to the first question is absolutely. It does not require, the book doesn't require any previous knowledge of Stoicism. And in fact, it doesn't really require any knowledge of philosophy at all. I, I've tried to write in the most accessible you know, way possible without using any, any jargon, any, any uh, you know, technical language. There is an introduction to Stoicism at the beginning of the book. So if somebody's curious about Stoicism, they can do it. But in fact, the, book, the, the crucial part of the book is the central part, the 53 brief lessons. And you can just open any part at any point at random and just read that one. And the idea is that every single section is, in fact, independent of the others. You can just use the, the book as literally as a manual for life. We call it a field guide because life happens in the field, happens in, you know, in reality, not, not in the ivory tower. And uh, so that's the idea that the, it's book, the, the book is, is, is short and compact because the notion is you bring it with you wherever you, you, you go. You annotate it uh, if you want to. You make your little notes. You say, okay, that works for me. That doesn't work. I mean, there may be some of the 53 lessons there might not work for you. Fine. Then cross them off. Literally cross them off. It's okay. Just put a big cross on it and say, that's not working for me. But others hopefully will. And those are the ones you want to circle, go back to uh, over and over. The, the general idea of the book, the, the project of the book was twofold. On the one hand, as I said in the beginning, when, when I was telling you how I got into Stoicism, I was really stunned that Epictetus is not a household name. You know, people, even people that are not into philosophy have heard of Socrates or Aristotle or sure. Plato. Sure. Right? But very few people, comparatively speaking, have heard of Epictetus. That's too damn bad. <laughs> and so one part of the project for the book is to bring back Epictetus to help bring back. I'm not the only one doing it. Other people have, doing, have been doing uh, similar work. Uh, so, so make it so that Epictetus becomes, again, a household name. He was for a long time. Um, the founding all of the founding fathers, for instance, had a copy of, the, of Epictetus' manual in their libraries. George Washington went to battle with a, a copy of the manual, of Epictetus' manual. Wow. Uh, you know, uh, Thomas Jefferson uh, left his copy, his personal copy, to the University of Virginia Library. Mm. Benjamin Franklin had uh, his copy always with him. So, so this, this guy was actually well, very well known. And so we need to get him back, essentially. Mm -hmm. That was the first, uh, the first goal. The second goal was to update Stoicism to the 21st century. Because, you know, as much as Epictetus wrote wonderful thing, actually, I should say that technically he didn't write anything. Epictetus' books were written by one of his students. Oh, okay. Notes. Uh, Epictetus himself, just like Socrates, didn't write anything. Um, but let's call them his books. Well, his books were written you know, almost 2,000 years ago. And a lot has happened since, right? Both in philosophy, in science, in, our, in society at large, in our way of thinking about things, in our way to, of reacting about things. And so even though I do think that the core Stoic ideas are still valid, for the same reason, by the way, that the core ideas in Christianity or in Buddhism or in Confucianism are still valid. Those religions and philosophies are still around. And the reason they're still around is be because even though the times are different, human beings are the same. 
Mm-hmm. We, we want the same stuff, right? We have the same problems. We want the same things. We don't want the same things and so on. So that's why the, these, these concepts, the core concepts are still valuable, but the language, the way in which they're delivered, the, the examples that one uses, uh, they need to be brought up to, uh, to speed with the 21st century. And so that was the second goal of, of the book. Very cool. We are going to put this in the show notes. And um, guys, I really recommend you, you, you buy this. It, it is a field guide. It's small and it's something that you can relate to. Um, Asima, as we close down, my last question. So for the people that are listening and they're loving this stuff and they're new to stoicism and they're, they're ready to go take on the world and, and practice being a, stoicism, a stoic student, I guess you could say, what are three to five things that we can go do uh, today, tomorrow, as we take on this new way of life? What are some things that we can take away? Uh, good question. So the, the one thing, the first thing you want to do is to start practicing because stoicism is a practical philosophy. It's not about the theory. The theory is important, of course, um, but, but the theory without a practice doesn't do anything. It, it would be like, uh, like going into a gym, uh, talking to a trainer, Right, and then you say, "Okay, that's good." And then, and then leave. Walk out. Yeah. Like, no, that isn't going to do it. Right, your your aerobic capacity and muscle tone are not going to improve by a single iota if you do that. But of course, you do want the trainer because you want to learn to, the, to use the machinery, the weights, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, properly. Otherwise, you're going to injure yourself, or you're going to be wasting a lot of time and being ineffective. Right. So the theory is important, but the theory is a small component. It's mostly about the practice. So pick any practice. Uh, open up that book, open up one of the other several books that are available on Stoicism these days. Pick a practice, even just one. Uh, there are several exercises uh, that are typical sort of the, Sto- the Stoic curriculum, so to speak. And there are several kinds of meditation. Just pick one and start doing it. If that one doesn't work, then you can change it. You can, you can, you can modify it. You can uh, exchange it for something else. It's okay. So the first thing to do is to practice. Uh, the second thing to do is to read a little bit more about it. Um, because as I said, the theory is, after all, important. So pick up at least a book or two uh, or, or download. There's a lot of blogs and podcasts devoted to stoicism in, um, uh, available around. There's a lot of free material. I mean, I put, up, uh, I put out a, a stoic meditation podcast every day. Uh, it's a few minutes long, so it's awesome. a Good. short thing. Great. And, you know, and it's free. It's, the people can just download it. So just learn a little bit more because, again, learning – brings brings about a better practice uh, and and a better practice makes you understand why the theory is that way the third thing to do is join a community uh, there is a lot of online and in-person community of course we are in the middle of a covid so in person is going to be difficult but eventually this thing is hopefully going to go away and uh and so there will be a way at, at the time to get back to to uh in person but there are several places in social media that are uh, two or three large Facebook groups devoted to Stoicism, Stoic philosophy. I run one of those. It's called How to Be a Stoic, which is the same title as my first book. Uh, but there are others. And those are basically support groups where you go and you say, uh, okay, I'm, I'm at the beginning. What am I doing? What, what, what can I do? Or I'm not at the beginning but I'm running into a problem. I'm running into some kind of issues and, you know, can, can people help, help out and people will help out. And then there is a thing called the Stoic Fellowship. I think the, the URL is just stoicfellowship.com. That is to find out whether there are other Stoic practitioners in your area so that you can hook up with them. Oh, cool. Because, because you know, online is great, but nothing 
actually beats really meeting people per, you know in face to face as i said right now immediately it's not possible or it's going to be more difficult but uh, but eventually it will be and so the stoic fellowship you just register on it and then you click they have a map of the world and you click on any place in, in on the on the world and it will come up with a number of people that you can contact uh, to start practicing stoicism together. And if it turns out that in your area of the world, in your, in your place, there is no local store, as we call them, a, a local group of stoics is, stoics is the store. Uh, if there is no local store, then just uh, create one, just mm. establish one. You, you can register yourself with the Stoic Fellowship and they will email you anytime that somebody else from the same area uh, registers with them and say, okay, there's you know, four or five people here. You can get started. You can come together, you can read together, you can talk about your practices, your exercises, um, and, and uh, uh, be on your way for, to, a, to a better, more mindful life. Very cool. I'm curious, can you leave us with your favorite Stoic quote, putting you on the spot? Uh, there are so many. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I know. Um, yeah, probably my favorite quote is from uh, Marcus Aurelius uh, from the Meditations. At some point he says, um, so the cucumber is bitter, don't eat it. Why do you have to go on and complain about the fact that there are bitter cucumbers in the universe? Right? And it's, it's a wonderful uh, reminder that's like, look, look you, you can have, there are things you don't like, but you can avoid them. Mm-hmm. Don't waste your time wa- you know, complaining about the fact that there's, they're there. Accept them. Just don't do them if you don't want them. Cool. What a great place to end. And Massimo, thank you for the time. I could talk to you for hours on hours. I really appreciate it. Um, we'll put the book in the show notes and uh, we'll get this out to everybody and hopefully spread the word of stoicism. So thank you guys. Great. If you enjoyed the show, make sure to give us some feedback. We'd love to hear from you and we will see you next week for another episode on the My Fit Podcast. <laughs>